Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You probably found us on at Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Special thanks to our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, for making the podcast possible. And thanks to our listeners. Today... We have a special guest, the legendary Canadian alternative autobiographical cartoonist Chester Brown. In the late 80s, early 90s, he did a comic called Yummy Fur, where much of his early autobiographical work is syndicated, as well as Ed the Happy Clown, which was sort of a comedy, kind of off-the-wall alternative comedy. You might know his work, uh, Paying For It, where he discusses his experiences as a John. Uh, His latest book is Mary Wept Over the Feet of Jesus, which is sort of a biblical case for prostitution that he lays out. There was the award-winning Louis Rial, a comic strip biography. Uh, That got a lot of play in the Canadian media and a lot of national attention. So you might have also read his work, I Never Liked You, which explores how he relates to the opposite sex and his relationship with his mother. All of his work is is very personal. Uh, He was one of the Toronto Three, along with Joe, Matt, and Seth, two other very famous Canadian cartoonists. So I look forward to talking to him. So hello, Chester. How are you? Hey, Aaron. I'm doing fine. I'm I'm doing great, actually. That's awesome. That was an amazing introduction. Like, I I can't believe you you didn't read that. Like, (laughs) you just knew all that off the top of your head. Like, I'm used to doing interviews where, you know, people have the information in front of them and they just read off the list of, uh, of accomplishments. But I guess because I've read your work and I've followed you and as long as I slow down, I, I think I'm pretty good at, at doing these intros. But thank you so much for the compliment. Um, before we get into discussing your work at length, though, I want to get into sort of your early life and what it was like, because I don't think a lot of people know uh, unless they've, they've read uh, I Never Liked You or things like that. 
But uh, I, I'd love to know, like, where were you born and what was your childhood and high school life like? Uh, I was born in Montreal, but uh, grew up in a nearby suburb called Chattagay. So that would have been 1960 that I, that I was born. Um, and yeah, my... I would say my childhood was good. Well, I had great parents to, to begin with, like very loving, just they never fought. They seemed to really get along with each other and just it was a very loving household. There were problems, of course, as, as I show in uh, I Never Liked You. You know, my mother had mental issues. She was a schizophrenic. But despite being a schizophrenic, she was just a very loving, nice person. So so uh, from that perspective, I had a great childhood. Uh, the teenage years were miserable, but, you know, most people's teenage years are miserable. Uh, were you like the awkward, geeky kid? Yes, exactly. I, I was really into comic books and, and, you know, didn't have girlfriends, was bullied by more popular kids, all that kind of stuff. Very typical. But basically, it was it was a pretty good uh, childhood, and then you know once once I moved to Toronto, all, all the the misery and angst from from uh, my teenage years kind of uh, evaporated, more or less. Well. Kind of slowly, but um, my twenties were much better than my teen years, and actually things have been just getting better decade by decade since That's awesome. then. The "it gets better" mantra is, yes, is true, definitely. That's cool. So, what brought you to Toronto, and when did you when did you come here? Hmm. Well, we're actually jumping over the art school years. I uh, like after high school, I went to art school for a year and a bit. Um, so that would have been in Montreal too. I, I went to Dawson College, which is a SAGEP there, um, basically like a form of community college. And uh, at that time, I don't know about now, but at that time, uh, Dawson College was the place to study art in, uh, in Montreal. And I guess it was a good program, but I knew that I wanted to be a cartoonist. And they were, I went into the commercial art program and they were teaching the students how to do graphic design or product design or, or do illustration work. It wasn't, there was nothing specifically geared towards comics. And I thought I'm wasting my time here. Like, why, why am I? Why am I here? Like, I want to become a cartoonist. I know that. What made you want to be uh, a cartoonist? Like, when did your relationship with comics start, and what captivated you about them? Well, I, I read comics when I was a kid. You know, in in elementary school, and I I liked them then. I wasn't super obsessed with them. Um, we weren't encouraged to be obsessed with them by our parents. My mother basically limited the um, the, the number of comics that my brother and I could own. There was a, we had a, a dresser in our bedroom, and there was one drawer in that dresser. It was a pretty small drawer. We were allowed to have as many comic books as could fit in that drawer. And then when the drawer got too full, we had to get rid of some of the comic books in there. So, yeah, we were kind of limited. Um, because she thought too many comics would rot your brain or? I don't know what the reason was. What, like why she 
wanted to limit the number of comic books. I never got the chance to ask her why, but I I think there was the idea that yeah, it was just it was it was acceptable within a certain um, within certain bounds. You didn't want to go overboard with the comics, I guess. Right, um, because it's not a book. Like it's not as yeah intelligent. Books, reading or intellectual. books was much more encouraged. Yeah, we could have as many books as we wanted, but yeah, comic books had to be limited. So, but yeah, I I, I liked comic books and and uh, you know would buy them whenever, but I, I wasn't obsessively buying them either. Um, then when once I hit my teenage years, you know. I think even before I really got super into comics, I knew I wanted to be a, car- a cartoonist of some sort, whether it was doing animated cartoons for film or TV, or whether it was doing like gag cartoons for, for magazines or, or a comic strip for the newspapers. I knew I wanted to do cartooning of some sort. It, it, it just, I didn't know what sort of cartooning. And so in my early teenage years i began buying comics with an eye towards maybe this would be the kind of cartooning i might like to get into once i become an adult and then once i started really looking at comics heavily from that perspective i became a fan i started reading marvel and dc comics you know religiously like every week buying whatever i could afford to buy was it just superheroes or was it other things too it was pretty much anything marvel and dc put out and at that point there was kind of like this horror craze going on so i would have been reading the Dracula comic from Marvel and the Frankenstein comic and and House of Secrets and House of Mystery from Werewolf DC. Werewolf by Night and the, like that. Werewolf by Night. Yeah, I loved Werewolf by Night. And also there was a Kung Fu craze going on. So Iron Fist and, and Master of Kung Fu from Marvel. I'm trying to remember. DC had some lame Kung Fu characters but uh, but they seem lame, so I don't think I actually bought those. But, but uh, you know, you tried to, because I didn't have lots of money, you couldn't buy everything. So uh, you tried to avoid the lame ones. But. How much were comics back then? Uh, once I got heavily into them in the early 70s, they were 20 cents. Uh, then they went up to 25 cents, I think. Yeah, and there was a point where I think all the DCs were 50 cents, uh, but they came out with thicker comics, I think. But uh, yeah, in in that range. Mm. So what made you want to be a cartoonist? Like, why did you want to be a cartoonist, do you think? I like drawing. I thought I was good for it. All the adults around me seemed to, well, they, they did encourage me. And I had the feeling like whatever art class I was in at school, I was always the best artist, which is probably delusional. Uh, When I talk about it with my brother, he reminds me, oh, yeah, there was this girl. I can't remember her name, but this girl in elementary school who was just as good as you. And she was winning some prizes in art competitions she entered. But whatever, I, I enjoyed drawing. So I wanted to be an artist of some of some sort and then at a certain point it kind of coalesced around cartooning because cartooning was neat i was a kid i loved cartooning so 
Yeah, and and then by the teenage years, it had kind of further uh, narrowed down to being some kind of comic book and probably doing superhero work. Yeah, that that always seems to be the dream is like the superhero thing is sort of what you envision at first if you're mm-hmm. if you're good at being an artist. So, but then you went to art school eventually and it was sort of a waste of time because they wouldn't they they weren't teaching like cartooning and things like that. Yeah, it was very close to being a waste of time. I I can't say that. I mean, I learned a few things, some color theory things, uh, some lettering stuff, doing type. Anatomy and things? Uh, Anatomy, not so much. I mean, we had life drawing classes, but I don't know that I learned anything. Uh, Well, it was good to do the life drawing, sure. They They also had us do some literature classes. And that introduced me to serious literature, which I hadn't been reading before. I, I, I took a, a Russian literature class, which introduced me to Tolstoy and Gogol and uh, writers like that. Mm-hmm. So that was good. Cool. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So then after art school didn't really you know, strike you that much, what happened then? Where did you go from there? At that point... I figured, okay, I gotta get a gotta get a job. So uh, I I didn't speak French, so um, it seemed like it was going to be easier to get along if I moved to an English city. Um, How is it to live in Quebec and not speak French? Is it really ostracizing or? When I was growing up in the '60s and '70s, it wasn't that difficult. It seemed like I had French friends, mm-hmm. but. They all spoke English. Um, But of course, by the 70s, there was a political movement going on and more hostility between English and French was developing at that point. So, yeah, I really should have made more of an effort when I was living there to learn French. But it was so easy to to not speak French. uh, And I think... It's still possible in Montreal. I mean, it's it's such a bilingual city that you probably can get along pretty easily there still just speaking English. But I figured to get a job, you want as many opportunities as possible. It, you're, you're going to be limited in the sort of jobs you can get if you only speak English. So, yeah, I'm, I moved to Toronto, where which is, you know, pretty English speaking. Nice. So when did you start? really getting into comics professionally and how did you uh, break in? Hmm. Well, when I first moved to Toronto in 79, I I just got a regular day job. I was, I got a, a job at a photography shop. And um, at that point, I was starting to lose my interest in superhero comics, but I retained my love for the medium and I was... But I was st- started to read other sorts of comics. What, um, what made you lose your interest in superheroes? The formulaic nature of the work was no longer... It, it, it didn't have the same impact on me. Like, you start to recognize certain patterns within the comics repeating themselves. And 
and the fact that the comics just didn't seem to really deal with adult themes in a mature way. You know, once you start reading real literature, like, as I said, you know, Dostoevsky or Chekhov or whatever, the writing in the superhero comics just wasn't at the same level. And so it seemed like more interesting work was being done in the underground comics, uh, like the Robert Crumb stuff. Robert Crumb, Art Gilbert, Spiegelman. Sh- Gilbert Shelton, Art Spiegelman. I, I probably started to get into Spiegelman more when uh, Raw started to be published, which was a, still a few ways, a few years away from, you know, when I when I first moved to Toronto. But um, actually, pretty early on, actually, within I remember in the early '80s coming across an interview that. Spiegelman had had done and I wasn't reading his comics at that point but I loved this interview I thought wow this guy's really bright he really knows his comics history in a way that I I didn't at that point and I and you, you know Spiegelman's knowledge of the history still would exceed mine but but uh, I, I I remember thinking, okay, this is a guy I've I've got to start reading. And Raw was the first the magazine that he published was like the first place that uh, Mouse was right. serialized. Yes, right? he he was serializing Mouse in in Raw exactly. Yeah, mm, cool. So that's interesting. Yeah, exciting things were happening. I mean, I guess it is in like the later eighties that that superhero comics started to explore sort of more mature themes. So I guess you, you sort of left it right before uh, that started happening. Yeah. I don't want to completely put down the superhero work that, and, 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 and actually there was good work being done in some of the Marvel and DC comics. I'm thinking particularly of, um, you know, Howard, the duck, did try to do some interesting things. Uh, Howard the Duck, written by um, Steve Gerber, and I guess mostly drawn by Gene Colan. Yeah, because it was like a political satire sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, so so Gerber was doing interesting work there, and you know there were there were uh, for for a kind of an action adventure type thing, the Master of Kung Fu by um, Doug Mensch and. Um, Paul Gulesi was 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 pretty good. And yeah, Jim Starling was doing some crazy psychedelic things. A little yeah, bit. The, I was into the Jim Starling thing uh, stuff too. The, his stuff on Warlock and whatnot. So I don't want to say that no interesting work was being done at Marvel and DC, but my horizons were opening up as I started to look also at at the um, at the the underground stuff and and I guess what would have been called alternative comics were just starting to get going at at that point in the early 80s. Right, and they were doing a little more like X-rated taboo sort of subject matter. It was a little more titillating, some of the stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But there was a willingness to, to, well, to deal with actual human sexuality and and political issues um, and and whatnot, yeah. Mm -hmm, For sure, because... They weren't uh, held to the comics code or mm-hmm. anything like that. Right. Cool. So how did you get your first professional work? How did you go from like being a fan to somebody who actually was going to make this happen? And how did you make it happen? Right. So because I had developed this interest in, in the underground movement, 
Um, there weren't a lot of underground publishers left by the early 80s, but there were a few. So I started doing what, uh, well, my attempt to do underground type stuff. And I was doing short pieces that I thought might sell to the underground publishers. So I sent um, these sorts of strips, the, the strips that later got published in the early Yummy Fur, uh, Yummy Furs, issues of Yummy Fur. I sent that stuff around to the underground publishers that were left, like Kitchen Sink and Last Gasp was still going. And um, I can't remember who else, but, but uh, Fantagraphics would have just started publishing at that point. So I sent stuff to Fantagraphics. And Raw Magazine, at that point, I think we're talking, when did Raw start? Maybe 81, maybe 82, yeah, something like that? Yeah, early 80s for sure, I think. So yeah, I, I was just, you know, sending the stuff around. Uh, and um, I would get very encouraging letters back, but um, not... And, and yeah, no one was willing to, to to publish anything. Was this the Ed the Happy Clown stuff, or was this before that? Hmm. Um, I'm talking stuff before that, but I probably sent Ed the Happy Clown the, like the first installment mm-hmm. uh, ar- around, and I, I do I wasn't thinking of it as an installment. The first piece was just supposed to be a, the first Ed the Happy Clown piece was just supposed to be a standalone strip. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I would have sent that too, probably. And yeah, got the rejection letters. And I had a a girlfriend who said, you know, why are you sending this around to all these other publishers? Why don't you just self-publish the work yourself? You don't have to do, do it in a, a fancy, expensive format. You can just self-publish it in a small zine and and um you know get get them photocopied and fold it and staple it yourself and yeah because there was the sort of punk diy zine aesthetic yeah since like the late seven you know the 70s yeah so that's cool yeah and she was more tuned into that world um she had several friends who were putting out their own self-published scenes or or poetry chapbooks or whatever and so she she showed me the the sort of publications these people were putting out and introduced me to to uh, people who were self-publishing their work like this and so yeah she really opened up your world a little bit oh, oh yeah i'm eternally grateful to her we were only boyfriend girlfriend for a little over a year, but we remained friends and we're still friends today. Wow. Um, she's she's a great person, and uh, yeah, I'm. It's 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 a very good thing that I met her, and and um, yeah, things could have gone a whole different way if I hadn't met her. But um, yeah, so I started. The uh, the original idea was that I would self-publish these zines and sell them on the street because uh, several people at that time were self-publishing and selling their work on the street. Um, the foremost person who was doing that would have been this Toronto writer named Crad Kolodny. 
have you heard of Crad? N- no. Okay. Um, yeah, he died a few years ago. I do remember that there was a dude who would like walk around with like a sandwich board thing. Um, Is that was that him or was that somebody else? Probably. Crad. Uh, uh, um, it wasn't a sandwich board. Crad uh, had a sign that he hung around his neck. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, for a while, it w- the sign just said something like, uh, buy my books, $5 or something like that. At a certain point, he started to feel contempt <laughs> for a lot of the people who would have been walking the streets in Toronto. And he started to write very offensive signs like literature for imbeciles and or, or just putrid scum or he had these unusual signs crad was a very funny guy but but also very um yeah like i say he had he had a general (laughs) contempt for humanity uh i guess he was a misanthrope he he did he actually did some very good work his his last two books are are both great one of them was called putrid scum the (laughs) other one was called uh excrement Excrement came first, and then Putrid Scum was his, I think was his last book. And it was, it's, it's a great book. Both of, both of those books are really good, but, uh, but they're not in print anymore. I mean. What do uh, they deal with? They're both autobiographical books. They're mostly about his life um, standing on the street and trying to sell books to, um, to people. And also other stuff that was going on in his life, uh, uh, you know, troubles with women, that sort of thing. Uh, in the second book, he talks about getting reinvolved with a with a previous girlfriend. Um, I can't remember the details of how that went, but it probably wasn't good. Um, but yeah, they're they're really good books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a guy in Toronto right now who uh, who's actually making a documentary about Crad. Um, yeah. Um... I contributed to the most recent uh, Toronto Comics Anthology, but I think the volume before, uh, volume three, I want to say, has a story about someone's encounter with with Crad. And I think that's where I first heard about it because i think he wasn't selling books as much like when i when i came here he stopped selling i think maybe early 90s Mm, yeah so i was still in bc at that point. right uh, he got an inheritance and uh it wasn't a huge inheritance but um he was able to live off of that, living very modestly and cheaply for the rest of his life. And, and like I said, died a few years ago. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which year, maybe 2014, 2013, something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was unfortunate. But So you were inspired by him. Yeah, him. And, and I... I knew some other people too who were selling their work on the street. So yeah, that was the initial idea. I would self-publish my comics and sell them on the street, and I lasted exactly one day. I I went out, stood on the street on Young Street, and it was a super hot day, and no one bought anything. I I had the first issue of Yummy Fur. It was a an eight-page mini comic. 
um, you know, that had been photocopied and, and I was selling them for 25 cents each. I was sure that for 25 cents, someone would, would buy an issue and no one bought a copy. And I just was so discouraged as I thought, I'm, you know, I'm never going to do this again. Uh, but then I had all these copies of the first issue of Yummy Fur. Uh, what am I going to do with them? So I took them around to book bookshops uh, around Toronto uh, and sold them on consignment uh, there. Um, I guess I think all of those bookstores are now gone. Uh, Dragon Lady Comics on Queen Street took some and pages on Queen Street, um, letters on books on Queen Street. There were a couple bookstores on Bloor. Uh, yeah, all of them. N- none of them are in business and, in, anymore. Yeah, but but um, all of those places were were willing to to take copies. So um, Yummy Fur actually was able to to find um, an audience pretty quickly. the The first issue sold or the first printing of the first issue sold out pretty quickly. So if I bought the first issue, like what would I find in there? Do you remember? Hmm. I can't remember. Oh yeah. The first issue had the story, the toilet paper revolt, which is later reprinted in uh, my book, uh, the little man. Uh, There's a story called Bob Crosby and his electric TV. I think that was also in the first issue, and that's also uh, reprinted in The Little Man. All of this material would have been eventually reprinted either in uh, Ed the Happy Clown yeah. when it was collected as a graphic novel or the, 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 the Little Man. And your early work at this period was sort of more akin to like the Robert Crumb style alternative comics like in terms of sort of off the wall bizarre yeah. sort of humor and things like that yeah at that point yeah as as i was influenced i mean here i am talking earlier about how the underground was was more mature and likening likening it to tolstoy and, and uh chekhov but but uh yeah my own work was more influenced by like goofy type of humor at, at least at that point and and so i was yeah playing off of that sort of silly work mm-hmm. cool but like for an adult audience it was sort of yeah you, you risque i was hmm. that sort of thing my work at that point, the the early work that I was doing that was influenced by the underground, at that point, it wasn't very sexual. Mm-hmm. It got more sexual as as time went on. I heard other people describe some of it, the happy clown as like scatological. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that accurate? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's totally <laughs> scatological. There's all kinds of shit humor in it. Yeah. So it's like you're sort of exercising like the the little teenage boy inside kind of thing. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I I was actually uncomfortable with scatological humor, and I was trying to... I was questioning why I was, because I would see other cartoonists dealing with it. I was trying to explore my own boundaries, and why am I offended by this material? And, uh, and if I try to do it myself, is that going to change how I 
relate to this sort of stuff. That's really interesting. So you're trying to like get over your own uncomfortableness yeah, by pushing it as far as you can. Explore my own hangups. Wow. It's like your own little therapy session for comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, a lot of, I think a lot of creative people do that. Their work is in large part dealing with their emotions, not necessarily challenging them the same way that I was doing in that early work. But, you know, it's a way of dealing with with your emotional life. And you obviously aren't afraid of being vulnerable or like putting yourself out there, at least from a in a comic. Yeah, that was that is a bit scary because you know that you're you're these these internal things you're putting out there into the world you're putting your internal stuff on paper and everyone can read this stuff uh, i i was initially concerned the first few issues of yummy fur i didn't put my name on them the there was a, a return address but the name on there was tortured canoe uh the individual strips I signed them by just putting my initials on them, CWDB. Mm. My uh, middle names are William and David, so CWDB, that was the only indication, that that was the closest I came to admitting who I was in that early material. At a certain point, once I started getting positive feedback and actual letters from readers, um, I, I started to feel more com- uh, more comfortable about admitting okay this is really me this because is because if this other is people a- are into it then it's not as yeah. bad right um so I, I i was like okay i can admit that a person named chester brown put this material out and um so maybe i can't remember which issue i started actually putting the the name chester brown on 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 the the back cover but uh Maybe it was the third or fourth issue. I, I can't remember. It is interesting. And I, I, I'm not sure if you find this uh, in terms of the phenomenon. And let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth. But I find that like creative endeavors, particularly comics, not only do they provide an outlet for you to, you know, exercise your own emotional demons and like, you know, test them out. But when you're doing it through a creative work did you find that like the fact that it was in a comic provided enough distance or enough of a barrier for you to be able to get it out because person to person you wouldn't i i don't think you're the type of person who would be caught dead saying some of the stuff that was in your right. comic like you're you'd be like shy and uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. but if the comic was sort of the intermediary it was much easier to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was very influenced by the underground cartoonists and they did that sort of thing. Um, Robert Crumb did all sorts of stuff that would have seemed racist or whatever, very sexually charged. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that Crumb would never do 
like racist things. He, he, he wasn't, you know, he would have disapproved of uh, the KKK or whatever. Yeah. But he recognized that he had grown up in, you know, a racist culture and um, that had affected his thinking to, to a certain degree. And so he wanted to explore this sort of charged material. It was, I'm sure for him, a way of dealing with his upbringing. And so I, I had the same sort of thinking that, uh, well, a lot of that early material, I was just trying to put down on paper whatever came to mind, whatever um, filthy or or stupid, politically incorrect uh, thoughts came to mind. And just it, it, in a way, it was kind of like dreaming on paper and not worry about what people would think about me as a person. And yeah, that's that's also why I didn't want to put my name on the early issues. But but then it seemed like people were understanding what I was doing or whatever. I got more confident. Um, and, you know, uh, Crum and, and the other underground uh, cartoonists, um, they put their name on what they were doing. So I was like, okay, I, I, I shouldn't be a pussy about this. So once that started happening and you started developing a following, were you like, I've arrived or like, what did you think? What was the next step after that? Yeah, well, it didn't happen all at once. Um, I, I put out the the self-published mini comics for uh, several years. I guess the first issue of Yummy Fur... Huh, I'm trying to remember what year it was. Uh, maybe it was, was it 84? No, I think it was 83. I think it was the summer of 83. Yeah, I think it says that on, on publication date. In terms it, of yeah, uh, I should know my own history better. But um, so if I'm right, if the first year was, I'm pretty sure it was 83, for the, mm -hmm. the, the summer of 83, the, the first issue came out. And so seven issues were published, the last one coming out in 85, I think. So seven self-published issues over the course of two years. And then uh, in 86, I got um, Vortex Publishers, the comic book publisher Vortex, they did like Mr. X and stuff like that, yeah. didn't they? Stig's yeah. Inferno. They were a Toronto-based publisher and the guy who ran the company, Bill Marks, he had been seeing my mini comics around in, in the stores and he enjoyed them. And so he, in 86, in uh, May of 86, he called me up and, and uh, suggested that he take over publishing and so I said, sure. It, well, I, I thought about it a bit. Um, Bill didn't have a great reputation for pe for paying people at that point in time, but uh, I d didn't have any other offers. And um, I figured, okay, here's my chance to you know get um, a much better distribution. I mean, basically at the time, I was only able to distribute around Toronto and. Um, through mail order publications to some extent. But yeah, if, if Bill published me, I'd be uh, distributed across North America. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I said yes, and um, 
it went well. Um, uh, Bill's difficulties in paying had to do with the fact that he was a small publisher and it was, uh, you know, he was having He's financial... He's for the money as much as you are. Yeah, he was having, <laughs> he was having cash flow problems, but when he had the money, he, he would pay me. So I quit my day job and was more or less living off the cartooning. It was, it was difficult, but... Risky, uh, right? You had to live small for a while, right? Yeah, it was... It, it wasn't a great living, but um, I managed to make enough to, to pay rent and, and uh, feed myself. Cool. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, there was a bit of a shift to more autobiographical stuff like about your life outright. When did that happen? What gave you the confidence and what inspired you to make that change? Well, I'd been seeing autobiographical work. I mean, Crumb had done autobiographical stuff. True. And some of the other underground cartoonists. The really significant autobiographical work in comics being done was the work by Harvey Picar mm. in American Splendor. Amazing stuff. Yeah. And I would have started reading that stuff... Well, probably pretty early on in the 80s, um, was reading Picar regularly and really enjoying what he did. And then, um, well, uh, when w- once I got, uh, once I started being published by Vortex, um, the cartoonist Seth, who was drawing Mr. X for, for Vortex, I, I, I met um, Seth at the same time that, uh, well, around the same time that I, was signed on with with Vortex because Seth was being published by Vortex and I was going to be published by Vortex. So, uh, yeah, we met and um, became friends. And Seth had a big interest in autobiographical comics and kept talking about how he wanted to do autobiographical stuff. And so for a little while, I was thinking, okay, I can't do autobiographical stuff because that's Seth's. Yeah, you, you thought you maybe you would steal his idea yeah, from him. I don't want to step on Seth's toes there. Uh, yeah, the, the thing that made me realize that no one had uh, ownership over the idea of autobiographical comics, it, it would have been when we uh, Seth and I started to see the work of Joe Matt. Joe Matt's work started to be published in various places. And... Joe wasn't living in Toronto yet. And Seth and I were seeing this work. And we He's American, right? Joe was born in Philadelphia at the time that his first work started to come out in, I guess, the late 80s. He was um, he was living in Montreal with his girlfriend. And um, so yeah, Seth and I uh, were seeing this work by by this brilliant young cartoonist, and uh, we thought, "Wow, this this his 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 comics are amazing." And and so that got me thinking, okay, and and also now that I'm thinking about it, that's around when Julie Duse uh, Duse also started to publish her work. 
the, her early stuff would have been self-published mini comics. And I was seeing those mini comics. It wasn't as explicitly autobiographical as Joe's work, but she drew herself as the main character of her comics. And you saw that material and each of those cartoonists, um, Julie and Joe and Harvey, they were all uh, using themselves as a character, but their approach was so different. And so, you know, I I got to see that just because you're doing uh, autobiographical comics doesn't mean you have to do them one particular way. You don't have to do them the way that Harvey did, or you don't have to do them the way that Joe did. Like, you can find your own approach. Which opened you up to Seth can also find his own approach, yeah, and so I can find I, my own approach, exactly. and we can both I don't have do to worry autobiographical that, comics. Right. Both Seth and I can do autobiographical comics, and it's not like I'm impeding his progress or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, each of us can find our own approach. Um, So what would you say your process and approach was or is, depending on has that changed or anything like that? Give, Give me some insight into like the actual like artistic thing that you do. I'm not sure. I mean, if you compare my autobiographical comics to Seth's, you can see that I'm more willing to to be more personal to 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 show myself naked to show myself having sex mm-hmm. Seth has his interests and his interests don't revolve as much around what one might call the taboo or that sort of thing and I was more interested in dealing with stuff that people didn't normally talk about um, or things that you were uncomfortable with. Right. Mm-hmm. I was, if if it made me uncomfortable to draw it, that made me want to draw it in a, in a strange way. What I noticed too about all of the work that you've done is that there's a lot of exposition in dialogue. Like things that you would be thinking, you're saying out loud for the benefit of the person reading it like you can tell that like obviously this is not something you actually said when Mm -hmm. you're like recounting a moment but you're doing it for the benefit of people getting insight into your thoughts a lot of that was because i was trying to avoid using narrative captions i had this idea that narrative captions using it's not like i ever totally avoided narrative captions, but that narrative captions weren't overusing narrative captions, wasn't an an effective way to use the medium. I had this idea because back when I read superhero comics a lot, I would always skip the narrative captions and just read the dialogue. And usually I was able to get the gist of the story. So... Yeah, as much as possible, I would try to communicate what was going on through the word balloons, either through dialogue or through monologue-ish type of word balloons or thought balloons, and, and, and trying to put as few narrative captions in as possible. And so 
w- one of the experiments was in in the Playboy, where I think that book almost completely avoids narrative captions. But I, I introduced that little. There's a little bat wing version of me in there, and that character, that little version of myself explains all the information that normally would have been in narrative captions. I I have him speaking them through word balloons. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that was actually a a successful um, experiment. Uh, The Playboy isn't one of my favorite books now. But, um, you know, I was was trying things like that, trying ways of how do you avoid using narrative captions. And in terms of your drawing style, it's it's sort of minimalist? Yeah. The the early work, uh, a strip like Bob Crosby and his electric TV, you can see I'm going there for a more intense type of shading that would have been more influenced by the type of uh, hatching that Robert Crumb was doing. Because mm-hmm. um, his stuff's a little more like severe and y- out yes, there. Yes, yes. Very, very... Sweaty and, you know? Yes, but also very... Uh, there's a lot of hatching and cross-hatching going on in his work, a lot of shading. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to do that at a certain point in my work. And then around the time that I started to do the autobiographical stuff, I was becoming more influenced by Seth's uh, artwork. And Seth um, had no hatching or cross-hatching. His work had a very open look. And so I was experimenting with that for a while and trying to make the work look more simple. I was also looking at, I was really getting into the little Lulu comics that John Stanley did, which had a very simple look to them. So yeah, uh, you know, just experimenting around. What about layouts? The layouts for my work have tended to be very simple. And that's because, like, I grew up with these superhero comics that tended to use very complicated layouts. And, um, you know, the, the, the layout structure would vary from page to page. And you'd have very horizontal panels or very vertical panels uh, or or panels that were diagonal or you know, panels that had no panel borders, whatever. Lots of experimentation going on. And um, the work that I did in my teenage years or or, uh, in my early 20s would have reflected that. Then when I was around 20, 21, I read a few books by Harold Gray, a few of his Little Orphan Annie books. Uh, Harold Gray was a cartoonist who did this comic strip, newspaper comic strip called um, Little Orphan Annie, which was famous back in the 20th century. When they made that musical. Yes, exactly. The the musical Annie is based on Little Orphan Annie. I read a a couple of the book collections. And uh, Harold Gray, for much of his career, just used square panels each panel exactly the same size. So I'm reading these books, and the Little Orphan Annie is a great comic strip. It's very readable, very... It gets you really involved in the story. The stories are kind of melodramatic, but but very exciting and en- usually <laughs> exciting and engaging. I was like, these, they, these are really readable, 
and it doesn't matter at all that each panel is is looks exactly it, it's the, the dimensions of each panel are identical each one square and it kind of helps because you you don't pay attention to the panel you're just sort of absorbed right. yeah, it's yeah. not about the panels you're right. just reading it and everything sort of melds together right so that got me thinking why am i trying to do these tricky layouts panel uh, panel layouts are irrelevant there was this idea that, you know, if you had a big dramatic scene, you would use um, a big panel. And if it was something that was more insignificant, a small detail, you would use a smaller panel. And I thought, that's bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. uh, reading Little Orphan Annie showed me that panel dimensions were completely irrelevant. Yeah, and, you, and you didn't even need, like, perspective or, like, foreshadowing. Well, or necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> there, there are great cartoonists out there who ignore rules of perspective. Harold Gray used perspective a lot of the times. Right. But reading Gray's work showed me that, yeah, you could have this sort of approach. So, so that was part of it, too. Uh, uh, beginning probably well my 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 earliest work in from my 20s from the 1980s uh, i stopped being concerned with panel layout and just would use square panels for each panel uh, for the most part occasionally there's some variation in there but but yeah i stopped being overly concerned with panel layout it's an interesting thing because you can tell that you're influenced by harold gray uh, which is, as we discussed, a little more simple and that sort of thing. But then you juxtapose that with like the serious subject matter or like the adult subject matter of your work. And it's this really interesting dichotomy because it's like it's like the innocence of Little Orphan Annie with the subject matter of something that's like in terms of the car- the cartoon style. Are, are you doing that kind of on purpose? Well, you- Little Orphan Annie wasn't so innocent. Right. It's, it was actually very political. Mm-hmm. Gray had a particular ideology. Well, Gray changed a little bit over the years, but, but uh, for the most part, he was a right winger. Mm-hmm. He was um, exactly what sort of right winger isn't... I mean, he probably didn't have a really sophisticated ideology um sometimes he seems kind of more libertarian sometimes he seems to verge more towards the fascistic unfortunately right but um he was he was trying to communicate political uh issues and was quite successful a lot of the time and a lot of the strips feel very dark he wasn't he wasn't just a cutesy kid strip but the the drawing style, like the aesthetic of the of the drawing, is a little more, I don't know, cartoony or. Yeah. Well, yes. Know, his is, figures. His figures look cartoony, mm-hmm. but but there's there's a darkness even in a lot of the even in that cartooniness. Light crumb. He could get very heavy with the 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 shading and the the cross hatching. That made his work, it didn't seem, it it could look cartoony and cutesy if he wanted it to, and it could look grim and dark if he wanted it to. And, And he went for both sort of approaches depending on 
the nature of whatever that uh, whatever the current storyline in in Little Orphan Annie was. Right, and I and I'm drawn to things like that, like the menace mm-hmm. in something that is perceived as being for children, or like you know you know what I mean, like putting those two things together as like. You know, the comics were supposed to be like the simpleton medium, at least stereotypically. But then it's sort of weird and political and menacing. There was a a lot of menace and paranoia in Little Orphan Annie. It's a really... Have you you read any of it? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that it would be so menacing when like what Little Orphan Annie has become is sort of candy and... You know, yeah, the, sunshine the, and rainbows. The and, musical does not reflect yeah. the newspaper strip. At least it doesn't reflect the full range of what the newspaper strip uh, could be about. And even, well, you know, they... I think I did watch the the movie, the, the original movie version of the musical all the way through once. And, and uh, I think they have... It's It's very... I think they have uh, FDR come on towards the end of the film, and it's 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 like Roosevelt was a great president or something. Which and, and it, for a guy who was like a right winger, like that, that's a they turned it into a very opposite, exactly, uh, exactly social <laughs> social good socialist yeah, message. Uh, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, Gray hated FDR. He like Roosevelt. Was was enemy number one for for Harold Gray, so yeah, that was <laughs> in a way the the movie is the opposite of of uh, Gray would not have been pleased to see uh, that that movie. What about you in terms of things like Louis Riel? Like it deals with like very like Canadian racism that we don't like to deal with because Canadians are nice and you know, multicultural and, you know, we're not the Americans type thing. And you are, you know, using that sort of, that sort of style to deal with these really heavy subjects, like, like the things that we're most uncomfortable about in our culture. Are you doing that on purpose to get people to like, think about it more or? Well, yeah, it's in Louis Riel that, I was I was trying my hardest in Louis Riel to make my artwork look like Harold Gray's artwork. Mm-hmm. I was that's the period where I was most heavily influenced by him, and he was the primary artistic artistic uh, influence there. It's because Gray's dark the the dark look of Gray's the dark look that. Gray could bring to his work did seem appropriate to that story. So so yeah, I didn't I didn't see that as being any kind of contradiction. Right, it, it seemed, sneaks up on you. It's it's sort of you think that it's accessible and safe, but then when you read deep into it, it's it's oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing kind of thing, right? I I I guess. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it that Deeply, that deeply. I, I knew I wanted to do to do the Louis Riel project, and I knew I wanted to work in the style of of uh, Harold Gray, 
And I didn't really worry about whether or not they were going to be a, a match for each other. I, I think they were. I think the, the artwork in Louis Riel does, does suit the subject. But it, 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 the, the two things just coincided. Right. And comics have a way of, they can deal with very serious or like graphic subject matter, but keep you at enough of a distance to where if you were seeing the same thing in a movie, it'd be a, it'd be way more visceral. So it's like easier to deal with it in comic book form than it would be like in a movie. Because I mean, sometimes comics for me get adapted into movies and I think, wow, like when I was reading this, I didn't really, <laughs> it didn't really register as being this, uh, uh, like graphic. Or like, for example, like when Louis Riel gets hanged, yeah, right? You can sort of take it, but mm-hmm. if in a comic, but then if you were to see that, it would be a little more close to home in a, mo- in a movie, I would think, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not it, it, sure. depend, it would depend on how you filmed it. I mean, with the sort of special effects you can get now. See, I, I would think they'd want to <laughs> <laughs> uh, avoid showing the effect on a being hanged would have on a body in a film. Yeah, is it more visceral in a film? I don't know. It depends, I guess, how you interpret it yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe um, it's an individual thing, but like, I always find like, I don't remember this being as hard to deal with when I first, when I first read about it, you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but Maybe. anyway, let's get, let's get back to the, the autobiographical progress that you were making. Yeah. Um, we kind of skipped a, <laughs> yeah, we kind of skipped a chapter cause I wanted, yeah. I wanted to talk about the Harold Gray things mm-hmm. and your influences there. Cause we were, we were on that topic. So you you're you're influenced by Seth's work a little bit. You you you're influenced by Harold Gray, and then did you just start doing it? Was there any like trepidation? How did you decide what you would tackle first autobiographically? Yeah, the first story is in a way a pretty insignificant one. It's just uh, I was living in a rooming house because I was trying to live as cheaply as possible, and um, it's about. Uh, a negative interaction, shall we say, with with a fellow roommate. Actually, he wasn't even... Well, he was living in the house, but he wasn't paying rent. He was living with a girlfriend. Um, so, yeah, a, 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 a problematic relationship with a fellow uh, roommate in a rooming house. So, yeah, a, a kind of a nothing story, but but it, that was how I got my feet wet in, in uh, doing autobiographical work. So I did, a, I guess, a couple stories like that. And then went. Then I did The Playboy, which got heavier, even if um, I'm not that crazy about that book. But, you know, that was, you're, you're, you're exposing yourself more in a work like well, that. I why was, don't you like it as much? Um, well, I, I talked about how I think the experiment with uh, trying to avoid narrative captions didn't really work that well with that book having that separate having the two versions of myself the the teenage chester brown who was dealing with um with pornography and whatever else i was dealing with in in that book and um 
the small batwing version of me who was the narrator of the book. Yeah, I, I didn't think that worked that well, uh, separating myself into two, two versions of myself, two characters, two Chester Browns in the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, even talking about it, it's, it's a bit confusing trying to explain it. And then what else? I just dealt, I mean, the book is mostly set in my adolescence. And I think the next book, I Never Liked You, I think I just handled adolescence so much better in that book. Mm -hmm. um, it was more really what you were, de what you were dealing with? Or personal? I'd, I'd, I'd learned my, I'd learned the storytelling lessons from the Playboy, and I knew how to, how to tell that, that type of story better, I think. When you're dealing with something that's actually happened, and like autobiographical, how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out and how to like manage the consequences of the real people in the story reacting to what you're doing and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> How do you decide I, like what you're going to divulge in a public forum <laughs> and what you're not going to? Well, or is I mean, that the secret sauce that with, <laughs> with, um, with, I never liked you. You know, I show myself interacting with, with people I would have been friends with at that point of in time or uh, fellow teenagers or whatever. Uh, I never liked. He was also set in adolescence. Uh, it's, you know, it's basically about my teenage years, uh, about high school and how miserable I was. <laughs> how hard it was to relate to women, too, yes, I think. Yes, it's 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 mostly about my relationships with, with women, both um, my mother and, you know, the, the girls who would have been my age or more or less my age. Did that come out of the fact that you were just like an introverted person or did, were you just not taught how to deal with uh, women really? Or I was, I was definitely an introvert. Mm -hmm. I think most of us, aren't good at dealing with male female relationships when we're in adolescence we're figuring it out right exactly we get hopefully better at it as as we mature and as we become adults but it's usually a difficult time for most people so mm. uh, i mean that's one of the reasons why it's such a fruitful period for stories but you were asking about, about, about how people, other, yeah, other, how you deal people. with what you divulge and yeah, what other and people think. So I, I changed the names of, you know, most of the people around me, uh, not my brother's name, but, but the, all of my friends from that period, I was out of touch with, with them all. And so I just changed their names. I didn't contact anyone and ask for permission and that was a jerky thing to do. It seemed fine at the time. I was like, this is an obscure comic book. Who's ever going to see this? None of these people who are actually, who I'm depicting here will ever see this work. And then, of course, years later, um, it's a book that's actually in bookstores and everyone saw it. <laughs> and because um, it was syndicated in Yummy Fur first, first, It was right? syndicated in Yummy Fur. And yeah, people didn't see it there. Like, uh, I didn't have a big readership then. Right. So, so yeah, none of the, none of the people who 
I didn't want to see it. None of them did see it at that point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, once it was collected into a book, yeah, people started to see it and people started to send copies to other people. <laughs> it got around. And, and did you and get so some phone calls? I got some phone calls and the young women in the story who I was interested in, uh, Sky and um, Carrie, both of them got in contact with me at a certain point. Did you did you use their real names? No, no, no those okay, aren't their names. real names. Okay. I'm calling them. I'm calling them by the names in that they're known as in, in the book. Yeah, just yes, clarification. Yes, both of them were upset that I didn't ask for their permission. As uh, if you've read the book, you might remember that Carrie is uh, has a sister in the book. Her the sister's name in the book is Connie. Uh, Connie also read the book and she has never talked to me. She is still pissed off with, with me, apparently. Uh, and I understand completely. I was a jerk. That was, <laughs> I should have gotten their permission. Anyways. How did um, you deal with it after the fact? Just very apologetically? I was apologetic. I wrote, uh, well, I, uh, as I said, I talked on the phone with both Sky mm -hmm. and with, uh, with Carrie and they, they, bo they have both forgiven me. They both said that they, they like the book. They think it's great. It reflects how they remember things being that it's that the book is very accurate to what happened. Is it interesting getting a primary character's perspective on events when, when you wrote it, it's mostly like, it's mostly from your perspective. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we all have that. We all, I think most of us, at a certain point when we're adults, we find ourselves reconnecting with people from our childhood and getting their perspective on things yeah. from that happened then and, and finding out how things looked from that slightly different perception. Did you uh, miss anything like in, re in, re in retrospect from their perspective or? Hmm. I don't remember them saying, Oh, I wish you'd included this thing or that thing. It really, their only problem was that I hadn't consulted with them to begin with. Right, that right. I hadn't asked their permission. Right. Um, that was, if I'm remembering correctly, I, I'm in, I'm still in contact with with both of them. I've I've talked with both. Like I'm, I <laughs> we're back to being friends now. Good. At least Carrie and Sky. Connie, as I said, still <laughs> won't talk with me. But yeah, I, I've, I don't think. Uh, yeah, they, they haven't said, oh, you should have included this scene or that. Yeah, the reason I ask is because it might be interesting, like once you've written something down and you're sure that it went this particular way in your mind and then they sort of reveal what they were thinking at the time, it might even, it might change your whole perspective on it totally. The, but that, I guess that's never, that's never actually happened to no. you. No, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so did that change how you handle it uh, in terms of uh, asking permission and that sort of thing from, from then on or what is yes. the... Then once, then I guess my next, well, I know my next autobiographical book after I Never Liked You was paying for it. You know, I mean, that's mostly about my uh, experiences with prostitutes. Um, 
I wasn't able, like I was out of contact with all of them, but I made sure I used, I mean, I, I didn't even, I mean, the names they used with me were, were fake names, but I didn't even use those fake names because even those fake names could be potentially revealing. Right. But again, and you do purposely leave out obviously like numbers and addresses and things like that. And yeah, uh, I didn't even want to depict their faces because I saw that as even potentially, I mean, people say you could have changed their faces and yes, I could have, but to me, the, the, the difficult part there was racial identities because, you know, I saw black women, I saw white women, I saw Asian women, and I didn't want to indicate who was, who was white, who was black, who was Asian, who was uh, indigenous, whatever. I was like, okay, you can switch identities. You can draw a black woman as a white woman and uh, an Asian woman as a black woman. Uh, but that, to me, that was getting too much into fictionalizing. And I wanted to avoid fictionalizing as much as possible. I wanted to have as few things that indicated their real identity as possible. So, yeah, I didn't want to say who was black, who was white. And I didn't want to change that information either. So just uh, obliterating faces seemed to eliminate that uh, completely. And uh, so if you want to, you know, I mean, they're black and white line drawings. You can project whatever skin color onto them you want to. There have been some readers who complained that I drew them all as, you know, Caucasian white women, which isn't true. I mean, like I said, they're black and white contour drawings. That doesn't indicate, uh, if you don't see a face, that doesn't indicate uh, skin color. I think that says more about the reader's perception than does (laughs) yours. Yes, they're choosing to see them as uh, white Caucasian women. Mm -hmm. But... um, so, so yeah, there was that. But with all the people who could be identified in the book, um, all of my friends, all my family, or whoever, uh, with, with all of them, I went and got permission. Uh, I did get permission from, I mean, they're, at the end of the book, I'm regularly seeing one particular sex worker. So I got her permission. I had her read the book and made sure she was fine with all of her dialogue. She actually did suggest some changes. She, she did wanted, uh, want a few things. Actually, she wanted more information in the book rather than less. So I got to include some, some stuff in there that uh, I thought maybe she wouldn't want in there. So It's interesting because I'm a journalist and so I know that like most of what you're doing is from your memory. Mm-hmm. It's autobiographical, but there is, you do have like reporting considerations, like the things that you just laid out to me in terms of protecting people's privacy and sort like they're your sources, quote right. unquote. Right. Mm-hmm. So do you consider at all any part of what you do kind of comics journalism because it can be that in terms of uh, because you are reporting right because it's it's truthful and like real locations and things like that yeah too. i don't come from a journalism background so i'm not thinking of it that way mm-hmm. to me it's just it's storytelling it's autobiographical storytelling i mean i'm trying to be 
truthful to my memories and where I'm deviating from that. I'm trying to, I'm, you know, putting that information in the notes section at the back. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, it, to me, it's just, uh, trying to be faithful to my memories right. as opposed to, I mean, a journalist usually tries to, they, they want to document. Yeah. They're taking notes, they're tape recording, whatever. They have some way of, of, you know, showing, uh, if, if their work is questioned in some way, okay, here's my source for this, here's, here are the notes or whatever. Um, and you do that in terms of the back, ma- the back matter in terms of like, I suppose where I got what I got but, from, but, but, you know, if, if I'm saying that a certain conversation happened between myself and a particular sex worker, I wasn't taking notes at the time. It's, right. it's just, you have no idea you're going to make a book at the time, uh, uh, right? I thought I might, but, but <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't documenting it. I wasn't taking notes. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't t- uh, recording them. Right. Um, so it, the only thing you have to go on is, a memory of something that happened, whatever, five years before. Here's what I think happened based on how I remember it going. And that's kind of freeing because you're not held to the same standard as a journalist is necessarily. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd just be like, oh, well, that's how I remember yeah. it. Deal with it. That's, kind of thing. that's what memoir is. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Paying for it is my favorite book of yours. Oh, Thanks. Once you deal with something like prostitution, it sort of goes beyond your own life and your own experience into this political football of a firestorm and what people think and how Mm -hmm. are you going to protect the rights of sex workers and treat them fairly and not minimize it and that sort of thing. And for me, as a person with a disability who... Uh, you know, especially in my adolescence and early 20s, like I was sort of late to the party from mm-hmm. like a sexual perspective to the point where I thought like prostitution might be a good option. And there's there's lots of now that I'm in a long term relationship, there's Aww. lot there's still lots of Sorry people to hear that <laughs> <laughs> there's still lots of people that come to me you know, who have disabilities and mm-hmm. find my, my articles that I've written about dating. And, and I, I even at one point considered devotees, people that are attracted to disability, because I thought right. instead of educating somebody and trying to make them feel comfortable with my disability, what if the disability was its own sexual uh, thing? Like that was why you were attracted to me. So I was like reversing it kind of thing. I wrote how that didn't really work out because what happens is you start being fetishized and they only really care about you for your disability and they can't really turn it off and treat you like a person, uh, the rest of the time, like the rest of the time. Like I was fine with being objectified, when we were in that sexual context, but right. if, but if like you were so bored with me that you were only entertained by me when you were objectifying me, <laughs> and then the rest of the time you were ashamed that you had this attraction and would prefer that I not meet your parents yes. and we not have a public relationship, that wasn't going to work for me necessarily. I can see how that would be a problem. Right. I I thought maybe this would work, but it didn't. It didn't really work because they were weird about it kind of thing. So then I thought prostitution, because Mm -hmm. 
I guess you get to a point where uh, you're like, you know, I'm never going to lose my virginity. I don't even know as a person with, with a physical disability if I can pull off the physical act of sex properly. And if I'm going to have a relationship with a regular person, I want to have experience doing it so that when I do have that moment, uh, I know the, a process that I can adapt to have sex and stuff. So I thought prostitutes, good good option. That's fine. I can get rid of this monkey off my back. I can have the sex and fine. So I did that once, I think, when I was like 23. I, I contacted a prostitute. I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, so I couldn't get the high-end prostitute or, or, or what have you. And the thing that made me uncomfortable with it was not the sex and the like consenting adults or that sort of thing. It was I couldn't tell if I was contributing to like human trafficking or something like that. Like the person that I ended up getting couldn't really speak English that mm. well. Right. It was sort of it was sort of on the cheaper end because it was all sort of I could afford I could afford. So I didn't know if she was in business for herself or if there was some guy behind the scenes forcing her to do what she was doing, uh, you know, or if she really wanted to be there because she couldn't speak English or, you know, or if she was just going through the motions. And I got I felt really guilty about the possibility that I might be contributing to the abuse of another person because I, I love prostitution when it's a, you know, you're doing this for yourself. This is what I want to do. It's my own choice, uh, you know, consenting adults, all that sort of thing. But when I can't, when it's too hard to discern mm -hmm. whether it is that person's own choice, right. I got kind of uncomfortable with it. Maybe I'm funding some pimp or something behind right. the scenes and and mm -hmm. is she really getting the money that i'm giving her right fully and in paying for it you don't really deal with that as much as i you know i didn't really get any insight personally into how you felt about that yeah, sort of the, thing well i wasn't dealing with it because this whole concern about sex trafficking only really came up around late 2003, 2004. Before that, people, uh, it's hard to believe now because now prostitution and trafficking, uh, like they're virtually synonyms for a lot of people, or, or at least they're they're conflated a lot of the they're time. They're not necessarily, it's just uh, right. different I, systems. Uh, I, I, I think most, the, most sex workers are not trafficked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, and, and that the whole concern over trafficking is overblown in the media. But I don't deny that it happens. There are definitely women who are forced into it or, you know, have pimps who beat them or whatever, uh, take all their money. That happens. And of course, uh, that's, a, that's a terrible thing and it shouldn't happen. But most sex workers do not have pimps. 
Do so, you check? Like, I don't, I don't know what the process is. Well, like I said, I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't have to deal, like, it wasn't even a concern. It wasn't even on my mind around, because, because this wasn't a big media story before 2004. Right. Like, in your work, you're more concerned about, will, will I get caught by the cops? Or, or how am I, am I paying them properly? Right. Like, you're concerned about the process in terms of between the two of you and how so, it would work out for you. Yeah. So, I, it, I wasn't even thinking about it uh, all of my interactions with sex workers that are recorded in paying for it which is all all that i had up until i did that book they were all prior to 2004 except for the last woman in the book who i began seeing regularly and i still see her regularly like it's and at that point you knew and, that she's oh yeah like not, they, that's like, not her situation yeah i know her like we've become friends like mm -hmm. i know her situation she does not have a pimp um she was you know she's never been trafficked it was her choice to get into the business she got into it when she was an adult like she the, the um uh, she's not drug addicted anything like that none of the uh, none of the cliches mm -hmm. uh, apply to her um right so and, and and not that i think it's wrong to have well, I, I've got nothing against people who take drugs personally. But anyways, so so none of it seemed to be an issue. I, then, you know, it, it did become an issue and I uh, felt like I had to de deal with it to some degree. So I, I put some of that into the notes section in, uh, in the back of the book. But um, yeah, there were no... There are no discussions in the book with people about the issue of trafficking because... I wasn't talking about the subject with anyone. You didn't so, know that you might have to ask ask that, that question, or right? Like that. The, um, so, so yeah, it it really isn't dealt with much in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in a way, you're lucky that you found somebody that you know is not being trafficked, and you have a personal. She's you're her only client, or. Uh, um, yes, at this point, I'm her only client. Uh, she, uh, she worked as an escort for several years, then um, stopped advertising and just um, lived off of her regulars. And then as the years went by, those regulars slowly dropped away one by one. And I'm the only one left now. I'm, and you only see her? I, I, I only see her um i i have had some interactions with with sex i i i ended up she's the only sex worker i've had sex with uh in the last four uh, 13 years 13 years there were two occasions where i paid sex workers but ended up not having sex with them uh, I don't know how, how much I should go into this. Well, one of them, uh, I paid and then I couldn't get an erection. Mm -hmm. And I think it that happened. happened because I was feeling guilty because I, w I saw myself as cheating on, uh, I'll, I'll call her Denise. Denise is the woman, uh, is, is the, the, the name I call the, the woman, who I've been seeing, you know, it's the, so the sex worker. It's so interesting because it has like all the hallmarks of like a regular relationship, except you're paying her. Right, right. So you, you have the same feelings. Right. But 
you're paying you're paying her and how does that how do you feel about that now because like as a person that's in a regular relationship i know that at the beginning of paying for it you say i don't want to have to deal with the fights i don't want to have to for me (laughs) for me they're not that bad like they're part of the growth like i feel like i feel like there are other steps in between uh in between I don't want to deal with the fights, so I'm going to do prostitution. Right. You know, I, th- I think there's that, that's like a that's like a big leap for for me. I don't know how how did you get there? Is it simplified more in the book than than I than I'm giving it credit for? Or I don't know when I when I had girlfriends, there seemed to be a lot of fights, a lot of arguments. Um, now, saying that, if you're in a 14 year year relationship with a sex worker and it's it's a relationship even if you're paying for it there are going to be fights right. <laughs> like sex brings up people's stuff like it and and yes denise and i do get into arguments she gets pissed off at me um, but you can handle it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like the same thing as being in an argument with a girlfriend for some reason uh and i'm not sure well first of all the arguments aren't as frequent. And when we do get into arguments, it seems more reasonable. And maybe that's just because Denise is a reasonable person. Who knows what the difference is? But it it doesn't feel... Arguing with her, getting into a fight with her when she's pissed off at me, it still feels different than having a girlfriend be pissed off at me. It's odd because I feel like you could find... A person like like it's possible to find an, a girlfriend that you're not paying where you feel they're reason you know you find the right person and they're reasonable too <laughs> and i don't mind fighting with them because they're who they are and that sort of thing and this is just a theory me that i'm we're gonna throw out there a little bit um maybe the monetary exchange provides you with enough distance that it doesn't feel that it doesn't feel the same like you can leave it's, at any time because this is transactional yeah obviously it has something to do with my psychological stuff and i don't like being in boyfriend girlfriend relationships for whatever reason and being being with denise it's still a relationship of a sort, but it's... doesn't feel like a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. It's, it's definitely not. A, it's not a romantic relationship at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, we're friends, and we really like each other. I just saw her t- uh, last night. She was saying all kinds of sweet, nice things about me. But yeah, it's not it's not romantic. I know she she's not in love with me. Yeah, you don't date. Um, like you don't go to eat or... Like, oh, we we have we've we've done we've we've gone to restaurants or or gone to see films or whatever or hung out for uh, like we do hang out for reasons that aren't related to sex or money you as know? friends as friends yeah, yeah I'm if uh, we ha- we have gone out and done stuff where I'm not paying her to be with me um, or I or we just hang out where I, where I'm not paying her. But, um, so that happens, but yeah, if we're having sex, I'm paying her. But, um, this relationship, I just, I like it way better than 
being in a romantic relationship for whatever reason I don't like. Uh, that sounds too strong because I had great girlfriends. Right. And you're I, still friends I, with a lot I, of them. I, yeah. There's I, nothing in the in paying for it that indicates that you don't like any of the girlfriends that you used to my, date. My last, uh, well, my two last girlfriends, um, Amanda and Sukian, they're both great people. I'm still friends with both of them. Um, and um, yeah, I... I I'm glad they're still in my life. My life has been enriched by knowing them. Um, but I like being friends with them better than I liked being their boyfriend. Is it more freeing? Because you don't have the responsibility of being a boyfriend? or That's, That might be part of it. Being a boyfriend, you do feel, or at least I felt, a sense of responsibility. Like if they're depressed and sometimes they would get depressed, I would feel like it's my responsibility to uh, whatever, cheer them up or I should be doing something. And, uh, you know, I still... So if Denise gets depressed, you don't feel the same responsibility? You're just like, I, I, I'm going to go or... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like I just say I can go. I, I know. <laughs> uh, but... Like, maybe this was a psychological thing, like, somehow it's my fault if the girlfriends are depressed and I don't feel that now that I'm just their friend or or with Denise. Like, it's not, I'm not to blame for her depression if she gets depressed, you right. know? But when you add, just the fact of, like, the title of boyfriend seems to have, uh, like, more, like responsible connotations like boyfriend ooh that means i have to be plugged in and take this way more seriously right but i feel like you're i feel like you're doing that in every other in every other way i i don't know it's hard it's hard for me to to figure out what the difference is between having a girlfriend and being with denise other yeah. than the monetary exchange because you guys do the same things and the handle each other. The difference isn't entirely clear to me either. There is a difference. It feels it feels emotionally different, and um, and certainly if if you know, I mean, I know she doesn't. Um, I mean, she calls me if something negative is going on, or, and she needs support or uh, just someone to talk to. I mean, that happens. But it's, it's, it's different. You, All I know is whenever I'm in that role, the role of being a boyfriend, I feel kind of trapped and I don't like it. Interesting. It's, it's cool because it's like, it's almost like all you need is a different designation and you can function as a boyfriend <laughs> as long as it's as long as, as that word isn't isn't part of it serious like uh, part of it in a, in a, in, a ser in a serious way right like as long as it's perceived as something different it is something different yeah maybe i don't know i don't know either it's hard but i wanted to ask you because there's a lot of things there where I'm like, I don't, I don't really know the difference. Like, I don't really know the difference. Like, like you said, right. <laughs> so it's very interesting. And then do you ever have, and I'm sure you don't have it in, in Denise's case, cause you've known each other for such a long time, 
but maybe in the beginning when you set out this this arrangement that you have did you ever have maybe this fear that like that she would that it would start out the way you pictured the relationship going and then she'd want to be your girlfriend and want to marry you or any like because people always say like for one night stands like oh yeah i can handle right. i can handle this but then sometimes people develop additional feelings for that person mm-hmm. so did you ever think that that might happen in in denise's case like it's i would imagine that it'd be hard to keep it completely you know, within the bounds of the relationship for so long, given that you've, you've known each other for such a long time, right? It it wasn't a big concern. I mean, it doesn't, it does occasionally happen that sex workers and their clients fall in love and end up, end up having, you know, genuine romantic relationships, even getting married sometimes. Right. But it's relatively rare. So, it wasn't a big thing. There were a few times with Denise where I'd think, where is this relationship going? Like, uh, is she starting to get serious? Um, a few, yeah, weird things. So um, in that case, do you pull it back? Like, do you, are you no, honest with her? And then you, no. you're like, we have to. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Uh, look, if, if she ever had actually said, <laughs> I, I, I am developing serious feelings for you. I want to give this a go as a real romantic relationship because of my, like, I do have, I, I have feelings for her. Like, I, I would say that I love her, even if they're not romantic feelings. But because of that love for her, if that's how she, if she wanted to give that sort of relationship a try, uh, I suppose I would have been willing to try, but I would have been very hesitant because I would have assumed, okay, this means it's the end of the relationship. Like it's, we'll give this a try as a romantic relationship and that's going to kill the relationship. You thought that if you, that if you cross that line, yeah. it would inevitably fail. Yeah, yeah. yeah d- uh, Not th- necessarily that, true, that, but... That was what I assumed. Yeah, <laughs> okay. um, I would have been, but like I said, I would have tried, but... Uh, but it, uh, Thank God it never went that way. Uh, there were a few times where it did seem like it might, but it never did. So, yeah, I never really had to face that. Um, and I didn't, I didn't worry about it. Like, I was, most of the time, I'm just enjoying being with her, mm-hmm. you know, like when we are together. It's just, um, I like her company. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I didn't worry about like negative possibilities. Um, yeah. How how does it work? Like, do you just see her whenever you want, or like you live well, separately? Well, yeah, yeah, so, we, all, yeah. we live separately. So, so. Um, usually, we get together every two weeks for like a paid session, right? And then. If we want to get together for some other reason, if there's something, if there's an event that we want to go to, like if there's something that I think she would enjoy going to, that I'm going to be going to, uh, you know, I can call her up and say, do you want to go to this thing with me? 
or if she wants to spend time with me, she can, I mean, it's actually, it's just like any sort of friendship. We, we call each other if we want to get together. Right. And if, and if you need like a date for an event or something, can you take her or? It depends. It depends. Yes, I can. Unless like she doesn't want to meet, um, my friends or family or whatever. Like if, if other friends of mine are going to be there, she wouldn't want to be there. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, it's especially very, because she's in the book, so people might be like, "This is her." Like, the, I mean, exactly, this is her. Ex- this is the Denise. Exactly, which, I, which could I, be uncomfortable. I, I, well, yeah, I, I did, <laughs> I did during <laughs> a few years ago. I did develop. Uh, I ended up having a a, a real girlfriend. Uh, like this is during the period of time that I'm seeing Denise. Right. Another woman uh, approached me and... After you swore off having having girlfriends. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, basically, we had a conversation. She's, she said, I want to be involved with you. I want to have like a sexual relationship with you. And I don't mind that you're, you know, if you want to continue to see... I, like I said, I explained it. Like I'm... Like, I'm seeing Denise. Like, I'm not going to stop seeing Denise. Like, if you want to have a relationship with me, you have to accept that this isn't going to be a monogamous relationship. And she said, yeah, sure. And so, um, so yeah, for a while there, I had, like, a regular... Uh, like, I thought, okay, maybe uh, uh, a regular uh, romantic relationship... Not a regular. A romantic relationship <laughs> can work if it's not monogamous and if everyone's completely above board and honest with each other about what's going on like i'm not cheating behind anyone's back that (laughs) that relationship happened and uh it didn't i mean it was a good relationship in a lot of ways but ultimately it didn't work because of course she ended up getting jealous of Denise. Right. Um, even though she thought she wouldn't. Right. Because she had her eyes wide open going into it. Right. Um, Just like how people are like, oh no, 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 I can totally handle the disability. And then they can't. Really. Right. Um, <laughs> and I was going to make a point there and I can't remember where I was going with that. You were ta- was- You were just talking about how like, you you were in this relationship and you thought it might like transition into like a sort of polyamory sort of thing and we were talking before that about bringing denise to events and you said well well oh, if she knows people like right right if it's that's friends, exactly yeah. thank you that that's where i was going with yeah. that so this woman that i got into this non-paying sexual relationship with that was that was a big deal for her because she would go and meet friends with me and we, like we would socialize with you know my my circle and people thought she was denise uh, of course <laughs> that's weird <laughs> and it's a weird spot to put somebody exactly like that yes i know and she the first time that happened we we were we met a couple i'm friends with and halfway through, we were having lunch together. Halfway through the lunch, I realized, uh-oh, they think she's Denise. And she realized it too. And yeah, she was she was angry with me afterwards. She was like, how could you put me? But uh, like, how You didn't could, know what you were doing. I, yeah, it didn't. It, 
it should have occurred to me yes. that people would think <laughs> she was, and but it should have occurred to her too. Right. True. It, like, yeah. uh, and and uh, you know, what could I do? <laughs> like, anyways, so that was a problematic thing, and uh, another problematic thing for her, aside from the jealousy of Denise. Um, how how does Denise? Is she just so such a special person that she can compartmentalize? Like this person got jealous of her, but she she seemed fine with whatever you were doing. With no, she seemed to get jealous. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. So so the waters are even which, more muddy which than I thought. Would like, yeah. uh, like I I said that there were some things that made it seem like maybe she was developing feelings for for me, and one of them was that she seemed jealous. She seemed to get jealous too, although she denied it. And right. and it's one of those things, like, how do you prove? But yeah, she acted jealous, shall we say. So here's my question. If Denise was going to do what you did in terms of like find mm-hmm. another person and and see them in like, a, but continue to see you, do you think you'd be able to handle that? Or do you think you'd get jealous too? I'm pretty sure I could handle it. For, for one thing, um, when I first started seeing her, she did have a boyfriend and I wasn't jealous at all mm-hmm. then. And uh, of course, at that point, she also had all her other, cl- uh, other clients. I wasn't jealous of them. Now, of course, the relationship has changed somewhat over the years since then. But yeah, you're I'm, like more emotionally invested than you were before or. Well, the longer you know someone the longer you're sexually involved with them the deeper your emotions are for them like right. uh, well maybe not not in all cases i'm sure but yes my my feelings are probably deeper well they are deeper for her so now maybe than, now that would be a yeah i don't think it would be but but like who knows if i actually was like you can't know you can't know until uh, it happens until it happens yeah yeah it's it's very interesting. <laughs> and that's why I like paying for it, because I like the sort of behavioral, psychological repercussions of the whole sexual thing that people have to deal with and stuff like that. And then and, and then you became you became kind of known as like, this is the like the guy who does, the you know, who sort of has his cake and eats it too or or like he's the prostitution advocate cartoonist guy kind of thing so then you with with mary wept over the feet of jesus that's sort of a, a, a like a biblical case for prostitution how would you describe it because i feel like how other people describe it is sort of it's sort of simplistic and and doesn't really do it justice I want. I was interested in Jesus's attitude towards prostitution. Um, Are you religious? Yeah, I. I. Well, I'm. Yeah, I. I believe there's a God. I would define myself as a Christian. Um, so there was there guilt, religiously speaking, around what you were around what you were doing. No, I. I have my own interpretation of. Uh, uh, of what it means to be a Christian. Um, And, you know, for a lot of the time when I was paying for sex, I wasn't even defining myself as a Christian. But 
so yeah, and and it, but but yeah, because Christianity is a big thing for me. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I realized you got to go back to calling yourself a Christian. No one reads this many books on the subject for no reason. You know, it's because I'm I'm interested in the subject. It's because this is a big part of who I am. Right. And I asked because I wondered if you wrote Mary Wept Over the Feet of Jesus as sort of a religious justification for what you were doing, like so that you could be right with God, because if you found an argument for it. Uh, like that was, you know, that's cool. And like, this is, you know, this is why I'm doing it. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just asking the question. The thing is the Christian scriptures seem divided on the, on the question of prostitution. What's going on? uh, What is the official position on sex there? It's, it's, it doesn't seem entirely clear. And so I was reading the texts trying to understand what what is Paul getting at exactly when he's talking about sex and prostitution. Um, does it, he? Sorry. And you wrote it in the first place because you wanted to find out what the deal what the deal was. Um, well, I came across an alternate version of one of the parables of Jesus. To me, it seemed clear that this alternate parable indicated that Jesus had a positive take on prostitution, that that Jesus not only tolerated prostitution, but actually approved of it. This is the parable that I include in in the book, um, the parable of the talents. Um, And so that uh, originally I was just going to adapt that parable and I wasn't even going to do a book. Just I'm going to adapt this parable. Maybe I can include it in some, uh, I'll do it as a short piece. And uh, when I do another book of short pieces in the future, I'll include it as one of those pieces or something like that. But then adapting that parable, I noticed the parallels between that parable and another one of Jesus's parables that's, that's also about prostitution. And I was like, wow, uh, like this interpretation of the talents throws a a different interpretation on the parable of the prodigal son. So suddenly I wanted to adapt, do adaptations of of both of those parables. And then I got thinking about other stories of, of biblical stories of prostitution and how that related to the subject. And this thing I'd read years ago, before that to me indicated that the Virgin Mary had not been a virgin, but had actually been a prostitute. And it all seemed to come together into a book. And so within, I, uh, maybe I got uh, the idea to do this adaptation of the parable of the talents one day, and maybe three or four days later, I knew I had a book. And, um, and I wrote the script within a couple weeks. Wow. So yeah, it was. It came together really fast. Even the drawing for the book was done quickly. The from the point where I decided to do the book and started writing the script, I was mostly done with the artwork about a year later, and that's super fast for me. Both Louis Riel and um, paying for it took five years each. So when well, Louis Riel was like dense with like research and like, what am I going to include and mm-hmm. what am I not going to include? Mm-hmm. And that's tough. Cause you're, you're distilling texts yep. 
into... I, I did a lot of research and reading for Mary Webb, too. Yeah, um, no, of course. The, the I think the bibliography for Mary Webb might even be longer than the bibliography. Right. Although the bibliography in Louis Riel doesn't reflect all the books I read for 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 that book, um, just as the bibliography for Mary Webb doesn't reflect all the books I read for for that book. Mm-hmm. So now that it's out, and and there's you know you you've had events with like priests and like people interpreting your work and critics have interpreted your work like everybody sort of frames it as like the people that i read at least frame it as like chester brown's religious justification for what he's doing right do you see it that way or are you more comfortable with the prostitution thing that you have going because you wrote mary wept over the feet of jesus well, I was already comfortable uh, paying for sex. Um, right, but from a religious perspective, like, like, okay, not only am I doing this, not only am I okay with this from, like, a social and, like, personal perspective, but, like, now Jesus endorses what I'm doing. Even, even before I got the idea for doing Mary Wept, even before I'd come across that alternate version of the Parable of the Talents, I, I, I was already comfortable with, uh, you know, how my religious beliefs meshed with my uh, sex life. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think, no, I wasn't looking for a justification. I just thought it was, this information was interesting. Right. But yeah, that is one of the big criticisms of the book. People don't want to believe my interpretations of the material because they feel I have a bias. And they're right, I do have a bias. bias. But that ignores the fact that all of these biblical scholars who interpret the material in a different way also have a a bias. And in fact, most of them probably have an anti-sex work bias. I mean, there are an awful lot of biblical scholars who come from a traditional Christian perspective or traditional Jewish perspective. And the the typical Judeo-Christian uh, perspective on sex work is that it's morally wrong. So if, you know, if you're a religious person who got into biblical scholarship, you're probably going to have that negative bias against sex work and you're going to read the texts from that negative bias. And even atheists who uh, are biblical scholars... I mean, horophobia is just a huge thing in our society, whether you're an atheist or whether you're a religious person. There are an awful lot of people who have a bias against prostitution. It's just, and and so, yeah, I think that, I think most biblical scholars are going to have that bias. So they're not seeing the texts from the perspective that I saw the texts from. Or at least entertaining the possibility that maybe right. you just wanted to know, and it's like an interesting <laughs> thing, and... Uh-huh. It's interesting. But like for a guy who is like introverted and like like we were discussing before to take it back to the, you know, first part of the conversation about how like your art allows you to deal with things that you're uncomfortable with easier and that sort of thing. But in this case, like you know probably going in that you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential backlash, right? Yeah. 
I mean, the thing is, I've, I've been doing, as I said, talking about my early work, a lot of that early work was about doing work that direct, directly related to stuff I was uncomfortable with. Right. That's been the case all along. Like, I've, I stopped worrying a long time ago about what could make me look bad right. or worrying about people's per- perceptions about you know whether or not people will think I'm a bad person or not because of some comic book that I wrote and drew even if it's a comic book that shows my real life yeah it's interesting because in a lot of your autobiographical work you're you're wrestling with those like you're you're wrestling with your insecurities within the work like you're saying I don't know what I don't know what they're going to think and blah 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 but also in like a bigger picture way doing this work more and more has has allowed you to not fi- not be impacted by what other people think right um yeah yeah i mean the, the even though if somebody read your work they'd feel like you're always impacted by what other people what other people think sometimes like i think a big part of it was that i got so much positive feedback for the early work that it's not that I think of myself or that I thought of myself then as a particularly confident person. Um, but when you've been called a genius so much, <laughs> yeah. it's not that you necessarily believe it, but you, you begin to go, okay, I at least I, I know what I'm doing. And so you don't worry as much about the negative comments when they come. I mean, I, I have a lot of, artist friends and some of them can be really affected by negative criticism whereas i don't it seems to roll off my back and i mean i can get pissed off uh, at a negative review or whatever think what does that guy know or or whatever but it doesn't it doesn't paralyze me the way that it seems to with some of my artist friends. It's very, it's very interesting because like jealousy doesn't paralyze you. <laughs> you can, you can live under the same roof with like your ex girlfriend and her new boyfriend right. and stuff. Criticism doesn't paralyze. Like I want to be you in a in a way sometimes because like everybody would love to have that, be able to remove themselves so that uh, way. A lot of it was was. The reading the right uh, philosophers in my 20s, uh, particularly these guys, Robert Anton Wilson and Colin Wilson, both 20th century, or I, I call them philosophers, like, uh, you know, they're not academic philosophers and, and serious philosophers wouldn't recognize them as real philosophers. But but they're, they're, they're guys who, they were guys, they're both dead now, who to me, imparted real wisdom and a real... Reading their work gave me a way to deal with the world and not let my emotions overwhelm me or my negative emotions overwhelm me. Colin Wilson was particularly... He had a very... Well, both of them had very optimistic views of the world. It was about having to... How to deal with this sort of stuff. How to deal with your negative shit. And and also since then, the last couple of years, uh, well, in in 2010, I also encountered this. Uh, I don't know what to call her. She's not a writer. This this woman named Byron Katie. She's got several books out, but she doesn't write. She she 
she speaks and her husband writes down her words and and the books get published sort of like a guru or like yeah. a self-help type person or no yeah yeah she her oh, books okay. are usually found in the self-help section okay and uh, yeah i guess a lot of people consider her a sort of guru but her her approach she's got a technique for dealing with one's negative thoughts with any kind of thoughts really and i've been following her technique for the last however many years and i found that's really helped me what is is the technique too complex to describe here it's not super complex it's it's um you ask yourself okay you have a thought that's bothering you like let's say i'm thinking so and so doesn't love me you ask yourself four questions regarding the the thought the first question is is it true and really the first two questions are the same question you ask is it true is it really true so if the question is so and so doesn't love me you're supposed to ask is it true so then the third question the second question is also is it really true um the third question is how do you feel when you think that thought so if you're thinking so-and-so doesn't love me, you'd be feeling, oh, I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling whatever, something negative in relation to that. And um, the fourth question is, how would you feel if you didn't have that thought? And you're not supposed to drop the thought. Or you can't drop thoughts. I mean, thoughts occur regardless. Um, but if that thought wasn't in your head, how would you feel? And you... The answer is, if if I didn't think so-and-so didn't love me, if I thought they loved me, or if I didn't care whether they loved me or not, um, yeah, I'd feel fine. Like, that wouldn't be a problem. And then you're supposed to go through a series of, what do they call them, turnarounds. And you're supposed to ask, for instance, okay, the thought is so-and-so doesn't love me. You're supposed to turn it around. Is it possible that so-and-so does love me, but they're just saying they don't love me? And of course, that could be a possibility. So you go through various turnarounds like this. It's a whole, uh, okay, I'm going <laughs> to, maybe I shouldn't go any more in depth, but, but it's a way of neutralizing negative thoughts. Um, Helping you realize that they're, they're false or like at least what yes. the emotions you're associating with them might be false. R right. That the, that the, that the thought might be false and, um, there's a very good chance it is false and that you're fooling yourself and that you're feeling negative for completely no reason. And you do you do this every time you have like a major negative thought? Uh, I do it a lot. Yeah. If, if I'm having an issue, if I'm finding myself getting depressed over anything, I do this and it works every time. Wow. That's uh, awesome. It's, it is, I think if, like I, <laughs> I told you that Denise and I have our, or like she gets pissed off at me. If I wasn't doing this when I was with Denise, I think we would have broken up by now. Like I, You could do this with a girlfriend now. You, oh, yeah. If you wanted, if you wanted to. Well. <laughs> I mean, not that you'd have to like break up with Denise or anything. <laughs> I'm just saying, oh. I'm just saying like, like when I read Paying For It and, and it was, well, I don't want to get into fights with other, with other right. women. Right. I thought, okay, but like, maybe that's part of the like evolutionary experience and like maybe now maybe in your older age and having this philosophy you're more well equipped to maybe have a girlfriend than you thought you were when you first wrote paying for it 
Um, I was already doing the Byron Katie technique when I had this experience with this last girl. Right. Uh, right. So there's something else. There's something else. There's something else. And it, and and it helped when when dealing with with that girlfriend. But it it yeah, I knew it was just going to be easier if I broke up with right, her. Yeah. <laughs> like you can do that technique all you want. I just knew it was going to be a better relationship if I wasn't having sex with that woman anymore. Right, right. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, when you came in here, you brought in some of the stuff from, I guess, what you're working on now. So I got to ask the question, like, what's what's next for you? What do you, what do you want to share in terms of your future works? Boy, oh boy. I'm about to start work on something. I yeah I don't want to I don't want to say what you don't want to say what it is cool yeah okay but when when it does come out how can people find you like are you on social media or like how do people get in touch or not get in touch but but track what you're doing if they're Chester Brown fans uh well I write regular updates on my Patreon site patreon.com slash Chester Brown so I probably if you're following me on on patreon well any of the people who who do follow me on patreon the, that's where i'd be first announcing anything right. so mm-hmm. yeah and you started the patreon site as like an another monetary avenue or yeah <laughs> um uh, Let's just say Mary Webb didn't sell as well as I hoped it would. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was going to... Patreon is, is helping helping me out a little bit to, to, to you know... For survival and yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So your next work, whatever it happens to be, it's not going to be on prostitution? No. It, it doesn't look like it will be. Um, maybe there will be one or two prostitute characters in the background, but it's, it's not going to be about prostitution. It's not going to be uh, a significant focus for the work unless I change my mind. I mean, when I started Mary Wept, I thought I was going to be doing a completely different book. Like if you'd asked me a week before I read that alternate parable, I would have told you that I was working on a completely different book. But um, so, so who knows? I might suddenly change directions. How, how did it feel when it didn't sell as well? Did you regret doing it? Or? Oh, not at all. Okay. No, 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 no. I, uh, uh, um, that book, uh, I'm, I'm totally happy with that book. I'm completely, I'm proud of it. Like it's, it's my favorite book. I mean, that's always how it works. Like for, for me, like after I did, after I did Louis Riel, Louis Riel was my favorite book. After I did Paying For It, Paying For It was my favorite. And now that I've done Mary Webb. So no, I don't regret doing that book at all. And you know, it did, it, it, it sold decently. Um, I wish it had sold more copies, but regret it? No, no, no. I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad I, I, I did it. Cool. Good. Well, uh, I think I think that's it. I thank you so much for coming in, and uh, I want uh, everybody to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Speech Bubble Pod, and uh, subscribe on iTunes to get more episodes. And we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thanks, Aaron. Speech bubble, the podcast that goes 100%.
one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.